Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan and this is the best of 2018. This seems to be the time of year when all the programming is the year in review and the best of this and that. So I thought I'd jump in and join the fray with a recap of some of the best and most memorable moments of the show from 2018. I began the podcast in the fall of 2017 and got a few good episodes under my belt. But it was in 2018 that Feed the Ball really began to take off. The popularity has slowly but steadily expanded, and I have to take a moment here to give a heartfelt thank you to Rod Morey from the State of the Game and IC Golf Podcasts for drawing early attention to Feed the Ball and so often mentioning this podcast in his own discussions. It's hard to know where I'd be or how the show would have grown without his support. So thank you, Rod. But it's been an incredible year, and I've had the privilege to bring to you some very stimulating and entertaining conversations with talented architects and media figures. So let's get to some of the most entertaining and enjoyable moments from throughout the last year. One of the most downloaded episodes from the last year was my talk with Rob Collins, the owner and architect of Sweetens Cove, along with his partner, Tad King. It was also the episode that I stressed out the most about because I really didn't want to have the conversation with him. When I went to play Sweetens Cove, I was expecting to have the same amazing reaction to the golf course that everybody else who seems to play there has. But when I got there, expecting some sort of like a golf epiphany like I'd seen on Twitter and read in stories, um, I, I didn't get it, and it kind of confused me. And I thought long and hard about it and why and my reactions. But when I, when I got there, I just there were certain things about the golf course on and off that, that didn't quite resonate with me. And like I said, I didn't really want to have this conversation with Rob because I didn't want to have to talk about his project and his ownership and this thing that's so important and vital to him. I didn't want to have to talk about my negative feelings about that. Like, why would he want to, why would he want to do that? But he did graciously come on, unflinchingly, and I presented some of my thoughts about the golf course, and he very gracefully and effectively rebutted them. So let's listen to that. I had a, I had a pretty negative reaction to parts of Sweet and Coves when I played it, which surprised me because of the nearly you know unbridled enthusiasm it generates in the press, online, the pictures I've seen of it, and social media. You know, and it does possess so many of the things the golf course does, so many things that I really love and desire in a golf course. But I, I found, for me, a few of the greens were contoured and designed on the extreme side to the point where, at least from my experience, they were almost unplayable in certain places. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how do you respond when you, when you hear that from somebody who's played your, your golf course? I'm assuming it might come up occasionally, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Everybody <laughs> else seems to love it so much. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, when we were building the golf course, um, we certainly knew that we were, were pushing the envelope in a lot of respects, in particular on, on the greens. Um, and, you know, a lot of attention to detail was paid uh, into getting the, the percentages in the pinnable areas to be very, very mellow. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of the transitions are very severe, but, but a lot of the pinnable areas are less than, even less than a percent, you know, typically, like if you look at a, you know, most pinnable areas on, on greens are, or at least on modern greens are are kind of between one and 3%. So to be even less than 1% in some spot, you know, Tad, to his credit, who Tad was my, my partner who finished the greens, um, worked really, really hard to make sure that, that they were going to be uh, playable so that it had that mix of high, 
high drama, but also playability. And um, I would say to you that um, you know it's not it's not necessarily surprising to hear that reaction. I mean, I, I think we we knew going in that that we were going to get some some strong reactions from them, but having you know had the course open for over three years, I am very very pleased with the with the general feedback um which is that you know most people find them to be challenging but but also playable so i'd have to say that i mean your your opinion while i respect it is in the minority so i'd be curious to know you know which which greens you you found to 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 be that way yeah sure i and first i'll say you know i think it wasn't the actual maybe the internal contours or the putting, you know, the pinnable areas, it was just it was getting the ball on the green, which, mm-hmm. which I think was surprisingly, uh, there was, they were surprisingly repulsive. And instead of receptive, they, re, they seemed to repel shots and, and even chip and mm-hmm. pitch and bump and run shots. And specifically, uh, the third green, four and seven and eight were, if, you, if you're off those greens... It it might take you a few different shots to to get on the green, um, mm-hmm. and I think you know. And I'll 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 grant this when I I played in early April, and you mm-hmm. know the Bermuda grass had still not woken up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a little bit wet, a little bit muddy, so the, you know there's not a lot of grass under the ball, and the course was in the low spots. We're picking up mud, and so you know you get to this place where it's very difficult to get the club on the ball but mm-hmm. the fourth green in particular so and i think it depends on what pins you you know if you're going to play it one or go around once you know one day play it maybe two or three times it really depends i'm thinking i'm as the more i you know reflect on it where the pins are placed that day because there's there's so many different ways you can set up that golf course but like on number four the green is amazing it's a absolutely delicious piece of art i mean it's a sculpture in itself it should be admired the pin was kind of in that upper middle tier that's a really hard pin it's a really hard pin and i i'm not ashamed to admit i was kind of in the low section off the green and Mm -hmm. trying to like hit a hit a bump and run seven iron up the severe slope it's got to be three and a half four feet high to get up there and then mm-hmm. when you get up there, finally, after I finally, you know, after roll back to, you know, down to my feet and in the little drainage basin several times, you know, take a drop, do it again, dig, you know, that the third time you're doing that, you know, you just juice one and it, you know, you could go over the green on the <laughs> other you're side. You're over the green, right? Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, and then on seven, which again is like a magnificent looking green, you can, if you miss that green left, <laughs> you can start playing ping pong back and forth going over the doom. From from the left side of that green again, there's a drainage basin which kind of makes it it collects everything, and to just to judge it perfectly to get up that slope with a little with a putter or a bump and run depending on the conditions, then it kind of falls away from you and it can easily get over to the other side and then you're doing the same thing. So it's those mm-hmm. type of experiences where I'm I'm wondering like at what point does it when a green repel shots like that are you do you get to the point when you know you're starting to like like repel. <laughs> the golfers, you know, or, or their, mm-hmm. their goodwill. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a, you know, from what, from what I hear and what you're telling me, it doesn't seem, it seems like a, a me problem and not a general problem that you have, but. Well, I think those are good, you know, good observations. And I, I would certainly encourage you to, 
to come back and, and play it again. And, and I'd love to go play the golf course with you. Um, it's a lot different right now than it was in early April. Um, we've been open for uh, three and a half years now. And this past winter was the absolute worst winter we've ever had. I mean, it was um, extremely wet, extremely cold. Um, every course throughout the Mid-South it has been very, very slow coming out of dormancy. We're, we're easily a month behind um, where we were. So, you know, I think if you compared the, our golf course to a lot of other golf courses in the area at that time of the year, um, we would have been in pretty, you know, pretty darn good shape compared to the others. But still, it, it's it was you know, the conditions weren't there because of the weather to hit some of the shots that you needed to hit. You know, nowadays, now that the grass has come in and, and we're into a warmer stretch, um, you know, a lot of those shots I think you'd find are a lot easier to play. Um, so I think some of some of the problems you faced uh, would be alleviated. Um, and regarding the repelling or, or penal nature of some of the greens, uh, um, it was my intention and, and Tad's intention to um, – basically have a have a balance throughout the golf course where you know sometimes the contours could be your best friend um and sometimes they could be your worst enemy and you know that that's a dynamic that creates a lot of lasting interest in the golf course because d depending on where you're approaching from and where the pin is um you know it's a it's an never-ending puzzle as to, to to what type of shot to play so that was a you know a very intentional thing that we wanted to to introduce um to, to the golf course and in order to do that uh, you, ne you needed some really strong contours to really penalize people if you get in the wrong spot um and and also but at the same time to really really reward people um, so, you know, wa walking through the golf course, um, you know, number one is, is a punch bowl and a, a pretty large portion of that green is extremely receptive and, and will, you know, can give you a great break. Uh, number two has a, has a funnel pin on the front that if you hit anywhere near that funnel, um, you're going to, you're going to come right down to it. And, and conversely, if the pin's up on the left-hand side of number two, um, it's extremely penal, um, just like number seven. Number seven, as you mentioned, has a – if you go left on that green, you're, you're in big trouble. You've got to hit a really, really good shot. And, um, you know, my, my feeling on that is that it's a 310-yard par five – or sorry, three, <laughs> we joke that it's the hardest 310-yard par 5 in America. Uh, <laughs> Can be. It's a, it's a, yeah, exactly. It's a 310-yard par 4 um, with uh, with a 150-yard wide fairway. And the, the challenge, the unique challenge of that hole and of Sweetens Cove in general is that if you presented somebody and said, okay, you've got a a 310-yard par-4 with a 150-yard wide fairway, they'd say, this thing's a piece of cake. Um, but because of the contours, it's not a piece of cake. You've got to get in that 150 yards of width, there's a 20 or 30-yard 
strip that you really need to be in in order to have your best chance of scoring. So, you know, it's a, it's an approach in, in recovery shot golf course, and if you don't find yourself in the right position, it can absolutely eat you alive. And um, I think that for me personally and my tastes, I love the dynamic of having total disaster right there next to heroism and, and being able to, you know, pull off birdies and eagles. And, um, you know, I've, I've personally eagled number seven and I've had a, a six or a seven there, um, doing what you described. And I think that, that dynamic and that, that possibility is what makes it, what makes it so intriguing. And, you know, I would contend that, that let's just say hypothetically that, number seven instead of having uh, a steep fall off on the left side and a steep fall off on the right side if if it was presented to the golfer as being um a hole with a bunker left and a bunker right um you and i probably wouldn't be having this conversation the if there's probably that that green is probably 5500 square feet there's probably, you know, 1,500, 2,000 square feet of pinnable area. Right. So yeah. if, if you if you had a a flattish green with a few little rolls and here and there in a in a in a bunker left and a bunker right, you know, you would just say, well, that's you know, that's a pretty standard par four. You have got to hit it in the right spot. But to me, that is a a much less interesting way to to penalize golfers and, and to create interest um, for a a fifteen twenty handicap uh, a bunker left bunker right which you see on a lot of golf courses is to, in my opinion far more difficult you know a, a guy who's a fifteen or twenty handicap it may be a very difficult shot but he he can hit that ball up that slope I mean he can put the ball on the ground use his putter and, and get it up there. And, um, it's just a different type of golf. And I think we're asking different questions than what a lot of people are accustomed to. So it's not surprising, um, that, that sometimes it would come off as, as off putting or, or, or too much because I mean, it, it, we are, we were pushing the envelope. There's no question. I was stoked when Bo Welling agreed to come on the podcast. Bo is a talented architect and landscape architect. He's also the lead consultant and designer for Tiger Woods' golf courses. Given the interest around Tiger Woods and the early positive returns on the courses that he's been involved with, I knew there was a lot to talk about. Right before we recorded the podcast, his assistant, however, contacted me and asked us not to talk about Tiger Woods or, or at least to limit the questions to one or two. So that took a lot of the, uh, the interesting conversation off the table. There was still a lot to talk about, and we got around to Tiger Woods a little bit. In this section, I'm talking to Bo about the Project Tiger and he are involved with in Chicago, the Jackson Park South Shore redevelopment, which they hope to get started on maybe in 2019. But it's the conversion of 27 public holes into 18 public holes. There are a ton of bureaucratic obstacles and neighborhood considerations and all kinds of other factors that have made the project difficult. But right here, Bo is talking about the actual design of the prospective golf course. He was on a shuttle bus going to a golf event, so there's a lot of background noise, but hopefully you can zero in on what he's saying. So let's listen into that. 
Where are you with that project? It's, a, it's going to be the most unique project I've ever been involved in by a factor of like a lot. Yeah. So yeah, so the 18 holes at Jackson Park is roughly 5,800 yards and the nine holes at South Shore is roughly 2,800 yards or something like that. So it was really needed to avail of the land of all 27 holes in order to, to produce an 18-hole call it tournament worthy golf course. Um, and so that was very challenging in that you had to, to figure out how to pass golfers either under or over what in essence is, is the, the end of, it's not technically Lakeshore Boulevard, but it's basically what Lakeshore Boulevard um, spills out into, it's technically Marquette. But in any event, and so that was a huge challenge and a huge constraint. Um, the lake itself is a huge opportunity, but also a huge constraint. Uh, you've got vegetation, uh, trees um, that are constrained. You've got historic structures and historic landscape architecture. You know, it was a Frederick Law Olmsted design park. So you've got historic landscape architecture considerations. So it's just like constraint upon constraint upon constraint. And, and so you know, we've probably gone through, I think we're on scheme either U or V in terms of how many routings we've done. And that's not even counting like, you know, routing A3 and B4 and all this stuff. So we've literally done hundreds of different plans to try to figure out how to um, come up with a design solution that, that creates world-class and very playable golf, but yet it deals with all these constraints. So it's a lot of words to say. I think the shorter answer is just like iterate, 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 and just keep iterating until you, you come up with something that, that truly works and, and, and sort of satisfies everything. It's going to be a different kind of golf course, I think, in many ways. Um, it's going to be tight uh, in some spots, and it's going to be wide and open in other spots. I think that there are going to be extraordinarily dramatic holes along the lake. I mean, we've got a par three routed, you know, that you play into the, the – backdrop of the skyline is, is downtown Chicago. You've got other holes that are going to feel more like cool. there's an element to restore the prairie landscape around Lake Michigan. And so we've got you know holes that are, I think will feel very prairie-like. Um, but then you've got other holes more back towards Jackson Park that are you're going to feel like you're playing more in the urbanity of the, or into or around the urbanity of the, of the, of the, of the neighborhoods. And so it's gonna. I think it's gonna be very, very unique and and um, and, and different kind of place. Parts of the site are very flat, um, and and so just draining them alone is a challenge. And so I think you'll see us do some what I'd call old style um, golf architecture kind of movements, like like in the spirit of Rainer or, or you know something like 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 the earthen formations and things that. Um, that are almost like clearly man-made, I, I think, to, to, to sort of energize and, and uh, <clears throat> parts of the land that are, are maybe a little bit less interesting. Um, at the end of the day, I think that how we'll, we'll shape it and sculpt it, you know, given that it's such a historic place, like, I think we'll want it to look like it was, it was always there from day one. We'll want it to look like it is of, you know, the, the, turn, of the turn of the 20th century era golf course. And so I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be something very unique and, and very different. I, I like to hear that your ideas on, on shaping it and trying to make it look old. And so far, what we've seen from from your work with, with Tiger Woods is, I mean, I think most people have been really impressed with, you know, the way the, the way things have turned out. Blue Jack all, with all the width and all the short grass. It's, it's very inspiring. And, you know, it kind of uh, it gives us hope, you know, for the future projects that the two of you can do together. Tiger obviously has 
an unparalleled understanding of strategy and that element of the game. Was he someone who understands like classic architecture? Like you mentioned Seth Rayner or Donald Ross. Does he, does he explore those, you know, that side of the, uh, the sort of the studious side of architecture? Yeah. I mean, so when, when I, I, I'd known Tiger Woods for a little while before I really sat down with him and talked to him about golf course architecture. And when I, when I had that first conversation with him, about golf design, I was sort of blown away at his knowledge of golf architecture. And maybe I shouldn't have, should, I mean, in some ways I feel like that's, I should have known he would have been, but I still was sort of blown away. And that, now I don't mean it in terms of him saying Chicago golf clubs, Seth Rainer golf course, and the eighth hole is this. But what I really mean is, is when, when he looks at a golf hole, like he clearly gets all of the golf course architectural elements of it like immediately. And I think it's, it just it comes from him being a very analytical player. And so he looks at, at a hole and, and quickly summarizes, you know, what the, all the different options are, you know, all the shot, different shot possibilities. And so I think he brings that, that real understanding to the game and to the, to our, his golf course design projects is this incredible understanding of, this is what this means to put a bunker here. This is what this means to shape a green this way, et cetera. I, I wouldn't say he's like the hugest student of linking this person's name to this golf course. But if you were to take him to a Seth Rainer golf course, he would immediately be able to decipher what almost what everything meant in terms of golf course architecture elements. And so that part of it's really neat. And I think you see him bringing that sort of understanding to um, – to his golf design efforts. And so you take Blue Jacket, for example. I mean, the whole idea of width and angle, different angles, different options to play from different angles, all of that is very much embedded into the design. And as well as, you know, how it's shaped and how green surfaces are shaped and how contours are, uh, not just on the green surface itself, but on the green surrounds. And, and the whole idea of doing all the short grass around the greens was really, again, a, a tiger thing of really trying to promote and create as many different options um, for recovery shots around greens. He's a, he's a huge fan of Lynx Golf. And the reason he's a huge fan of Lynx Golf is because – Lynx Golf provides so many different options of how to play a shot, and that's what he really, really likes. And so we've tried to bring that to that sort of shot making or, or options for shot making. We've tried to bring that to the, to the designs that he's been involved in. But Willing is really a smart guy, as you can tell, very intelligent, very well-spoken, and very on message. Some of my favorite people to interview are, however, older architects, guys like Ron Pritchard or Ron Force or PB Dye who are not really on message. They're at a point in their career where they can kind of speak freely. They're not worried about getting jobs and they just have a wealth of experience and great stories. One of my favorite exchanges from the year was this little bit from this podcast I did with Dr. Michael Herdson. He started his career working for a Midwestern regional architect named Jack Kidwell. And then later, of course, went on to pair with Dana Fry for a very, very successful uh, architectural career. And they produced Aaron Hills and so many other kind of very kind of high spectacle, but yet very creative and very industrious courses. There's a lot of visual appeal and flair to their courses, um, but there's also some solid uh, strategic underpinnings and a lot of diverse looks that they made together. But in this segment, Dr. Herdson's taking me back to kind of how he got in to golf course architecture in his early days, and it's it's really fascinating to listen to. Well, I uh, through I worked for Jack up until '66. 
So when I got my bachelor's degree in turfgrass management, I was still working as an assistant superintendent and then Jack superintendent um, from about my junior year in college. Jack, I, I mean, I'd been working there for six years or seven years, and golf course maintenance was pretty easy back then. So he just said, here, you you do that. And then he got busy doing more golf architecture stuff, so he didn't have to worry about the golf course. He let me do that. And then from there to my Ph.D., master's Ph.D., and then I was in the military up until um, the end of the Vietnam War. And so in 72, when actually 73, I got released from active duty, that's when I went back and um, and got a formal partnership with Jack. What What were you doing? Doing? Excuse me. What were you doing during the war? Were you Were well, you active, I, or what? Did you go overseas? Well, yeah, it was kind of interesting. I was commissioned in 1966, and um, I was um, through ROTC, and um, you didn't know what branch you got until you were commissioned. And so I was hoping to get like infantry or uh, artillery or arm or some combat branch. You wanted you and, wanted combat? <laughs> most, oh God, yeah, I loved most it. Were I, running I just, for the border. <laughs> yeah, you're young and dumb and think you're bulletproof, you know. And and uh, you know, I yeah, I had no problem at all of becoming uh-huh. an infantryman. So which uh, which officer. what year was this when you got commissioned? Sixty six. Okay. So the Vietnam War just really starting to heat up then. Yeah. And um, so I went to, um, um, and actually when I got commissioned, I got commissioned in the chemical corps. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, shit, I don't want to be in a, you know, uh, you know, service support. Um, I want to be what, in a What in is a the chemical unit. corps? What is the chemical corps? Well, uh, the chemical corps was, was responsible for um, all nuclear weapons, um, all biological weapons and all chemical weapons. So agent and my orders, I had two sets of orders to Vietnam and both of them ended up being canceled. But, uh, both sets of orders were to spray jungles, uh, with agent orange. And so I would be a chemical officer assigned to a unit that would be, um, have responsibility for, uh, that particular kind of operation. It was called operation Ranchan back then. And um, they, um, uh, so in the chemical corps, we learned about um, poisonous gases, uh, poisonous liquids, uh, nerve agents, uh, you know, riot control. Uh, Back then, they were messing around with hallucinogens, you know, the LSDs and those sorts of things. To put that in the water supply or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that uh, developing uh, biological weapons you could spray on another country's crops and destroy them. And I mean, it's pretty hairy stuff. I have to, and, I have to ask, when you're a young young person at that age and you're being exposed to this kind of intelligence, do you have a do you have any feelings about this? Is is it an anything goes mentality because you're at war, or do you have reservations about the implications of these products? Well, that's that's a pretty interesting question. First of all, um, I have to tell you what my basic officer class was. Is that once we were commissioned, in my basic officer class down at Fort Anniston or Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama, there were 31 of us in that class. 30, 31 officers, 30 of them had PhDs, and one had a master's degree in chemical engineering. And so you had a bunch of egghead guys in this officer corps in this class and so we were all kind of 
cavalier about things. And then the more we learned about the horrors of chemical, biological, and radiological warfare, it sobered us up very, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. they, you weren't very cavalier at all. Uh, and, and even now, um, the, the whole chemical aspect, you know, it's where what the uh, North Korean uh, uh, president killed his brother using VX, uh, the, a nerve agent. And um, so, I mean, those things, and, and they yeah. have the largest stockpile of both chemical weapons and biological weapons. I mean, we went after Saddam Hussein because we thought he had chemical weapons, and he probably did, uh, and they were able to dispose of them. But, you know, this chemical, biological, radiological warfare is scary stuff. And uh, so as a young person, until you learn about it, you know, it's just like, you know, we're going to spray jungles. Big that deal. tough. I mean, um, you talk about yeah, how but, the moral side of it, but, you know, like about worrying it being in the wrong hands. But it sounds like, you know, we were we were using it. America was using it, too, in developing these things. Oh, absolutely. And and it's only because it all started back in World War One uh, when the Germans introduced uh, chlorine gas. Um, all of a sudden. It was like, my God, this is a game changer. Uh, and um, so you, you had to uh, develop those kinds of weapons and defenses. Uh, so, yeah, it was it's pretty eye-opening and still is. Mm -hmm. You just don't know about it. Well, I had, two, as I say, two sets of orders of Vietnam, and the only reason that that I didn't go was in 1972, as the war was winding down, Nixon got rid of the Chemical Corps. And he basically said, we were told as officers, you could either go into Ordnance Corps or you could go to any schools in the inventory and you just have to up your reserve commitment to seven years. Well, I'm thinking, this is great, man. I, uh, first of all, I didn't want to be in a chemical corps. Secondly, I could, uh, and I ended up going to Special Forces uh, School and Airborne School and Special Forces and then took a seven-year reserve commitment. So, so you I were loved the, every. Did you, was it the Army that you were in? Mm -hmm. So you're a Green yes. Beret? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. if you'd have been deployed, you'd have probably saw some real shit over there. Yeah. Yeah. That um, was um, it, either in the Chemical Corps or through uh, the Special Forces. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. And it's um, a pretty interesting thing. And, and uh, I end up staying. I end up retiring as a colonel. Mm-hmm. Um, after 23 years, so not on active duty, but com combination of active and reserve. Yeah, so at what point did your, you know, you, you said that when you were young and dumb, you were you wanted an infantry or, you know, a combat position. At, at what point did your view start to swing to the point you were happy that you were not being deployed? You know, that that's a really good question. And it was years after the war. Okay. Um, after the Vietnam War. And, uh, again, I had my reserve commitment, so I had Special Forces Reserve units. And and lots of those guys had two, three, or four tours um, in Vietnam. And um, and those guys were my sergeants and, and soldiers. And I started to see the sort of the impact that it had on them. And, uh, and we would start to talk about things and and stories and i'm thinking you know as much as i hated missing that war i don't have nightmares yeah. uh i don't have 
you know, guilt feelings. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that, uh, and I think that this last series that, that Tom Burns did on Vietnam was just so wonderful because it just detailed out all of those kinds of feelings and, and thoughts that people had. And yeah, a lot of people, you know, who, lot, you know, were of your age and generation didn't want to watch that. It was a little too uncomfortable, I think, or, you yeah. know, they just didn't want to see those, that stuff again. Yeah. 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 So you're, so you're in, that. you're in, um, you were working at that time in you and uh, Jack Kidwell in Columbus. Is that where your office was? Yeah, it still is. So, and so when I went, after I got out of the army, I came back and then Jack and I basically worked out of our homes and then we got an office and now I'm still in an office that we bought in the early nineties. Yeah. It just, it just occurred to me that when you, at that time period and you're, you're active in the army uh, and then the, the shooting at Kent State happens in 1970. About that same time, you're starting to go to work, and it's just what an hour away from where you were. What were your yeah, right. how did, What were your feelings about that? You must have. Did you have a, some conflicted feelings, or were you still? Uh, did it anger you that that there were these war protests happening all over the country? Well, that, uh, you know, I uh, I will sheepishly admit that I was angry that all the war protests were were happening all over the country. Um, I truly believed in the the theory that if we let the golden triangle fall, uh, then the communists will take over the world. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I was a product of McCarthyism. And, and then the, you know, I, only thing I can say is we should have backed Ho Chi Minh uh, instead of fighting the guy. Um, and that would have been a lot smarter move. Well, let's, let's uh, shift back into golf a little more yeah. uh, soft topic. Another riveting conversation I had was with Robert Trent Jones Jr., another architect from the previous generation. He came across as a really lovely spiritual man, but he bristled a few times out at the premises that I was laying forth when I was asking him questions. In particular, he didn't like my assessment of the widespread reaction to Chambers Bay and the way the course was presented during the 2015 Open, which I didn't even think was a controversial position to proffer. I thought it was just common knowledge or common perception that the conditions of that course uh, were not indicative of the way the Chambers Bay usually plays or the way the USGA intended them to play. But we got on that topic and um, he gave me an earful. Well, basically, I've had the you know enormous privilege to design two U.S. Open courses chosen by my peers at the highest level of the USGA, one for men at Chambers Bay and one for women at, at the next year at Cordoval. So while I wasn't thinking about the U.S. Open at Cordoval for women, I was we were thinking about it at, at Chambers Bay. There was extremely avant-garde in his era after, World War II because he knew the game had changed since the mid-30s when golf architecture virtually stopped during the depression of World War II. So when he did Peachtree and other courses, um, mm-hmm. he was saying, okay, the ball's going much farther, the equipment's better, the aerodynamics of the nipples, the Saracens invented a sand wedge, bunkers are no longer fierce, and we need more water. He was adjusting to his own era. So I said to myself, uh, as well as to Mike Davis, who I consider a colleague of great skill and knowledge, um, we need to think about how, what we can do here. And so Chambers Bay is unique in the sense it's a huge, big, open site, entirely crafted out of an abandoned mine, but there's not a tree on it in play, and there's not a water hazard on it. That's so different from the golf courses that most people play on tour, the water, the trees of the deep south in Atlanta where 
East Lake is or the ponds they're in. And this is the exact opposite. So why? Well, we could get a firm and fast course on a big uh, um, site, and so the courses can be played long, and it was, on how far it's hit ends up. So let's say the, the Limberbacks hit it 280 yards and it lands 280. It doesn't stop. It rolls another 40 yards in some direction. So we crafted the land to roll very far sharp left or very far right or not necessarily forward at where the landing point is. So the, what we were doing to the long players who are at the highest skill levels of the game, we were asking them to think about their tee shot and not how far it goes, but, but you know, distance and control. And that's a new way of thinking in defense. Now, many of the pros didn't like that. They're used to having everything prepared for them. They're used to Four Seasons hotels. The rooms are perfect. They know where the bathroom is. The pillows are nice. And that's what they get every week on tour. But when they come to the U.S. Open, which is run by somebody else, it, it can be different. And it will be different again at Shinnecock for some of the same reasons. But it's open to the winds. It's, it's sandy. It's uh, high fescue grasses, and all of which makes it different. And it isn't British, and it isn't American. It's its own self, as the Irish would call it. So I think it's an avant-garde way to look at it. I can tell you from speaking with and being there all week that while I was uh, on defense personally from some of the Golf Channel and other people, it didn't matter to me because I think the main thing is we got emotion back in the game. And when at the highest levels of the game, the best players in the world are emotional, I've done my job. And so as the USGA uh, and the setup that Mike Davis did. Uh, and I think that the, the, the credibility of the course was self-evident in that on Sunday afternoon, there were six players standing on the 10th tee, all of whom could win the championship. And the lead changed it to different people three times in that back nine. And you know the rest of the story. That's the essence of playing up. And the players tell me they love that. It wasn't a boring Sunday afternoon. It, they had to reach deeper and play harder to win. And that's the nature of our national championship. It should be every time. Yeah. The lasting impression, though, of Chambers Bay in the public's mind is that there was some kind of uh, debacle that was happening there. Uh, whether the true, or, whether that's true or not you, is, is debatable, but were, were you frustrated at all by the way the course was set up, or was it more a matter of, of nature just not cooperating and not getting the uh, providing the expected atmosphere that, that you typically would find were Chambers Bay in? Were you there? Were you there at the tournament? Championship? Well, the people that were there, the people who no, were I there, wasn't there. I'm... were ecstatic. The people who were actually following the, in the crowds did not, not have that impression at all. That was only Golf Channel to, because Fox News was new, and it was an in, internal debate about the, uh, in the media, uh, the, the television media. It was a subtext to the, the reality of what actually was going on. The general public is, if the general public is those who watch on television, golf's not a spectator sport. You've got to walk it. You've got to be there. You had to be at present to understand what actually happened, and they were. And so the people who were the spectators, so do you, do you several thousands of spectators, I did not hear one complaint. So do you? Do you think? I think there's a general perception general out there perception. that something was wrong with the, the setup perception or the conditioning of, the of my art. Probably when um, Michelangelo did David, maybe some people thought it shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing nudes in the time of this of Christendom. I don't know. That's, you, know you have to take high risk, whether it's in the Soviet Union or in this. This, this golf course, according to others, is, according to Johnny Miller, is a golf treasure which will last the test of time. Now, could it have been maintained differently? Uh, could, could, could something have been done differently? Maybe. But golf is an outdoor sport which is, is, is subject to the vicissitudes of weather. 
and also management. So the pros are so used to a perfectly set up golf course each week that they're used to that they were that this was unexpected in a sense. The Lynx game, which is based on fescue grasses, which is the original grasses for 400 years in the U.K., is a different kind of grass, and they're not used to it. But they're being paid a lot of money, so, you know, let them play up. I heard no complaints from Justin Johnson. To the contrary, he said, I'd love to play here every week. I'd make a lot of money. Obviously, Jordan Spieth was happy, and his caddy was happy. Uh, uh, Gra- the South Africans understood it. Um, Grace and, and the Australians understood it. Scott, and not one of them complained. They all complimented it. People who didn't, who did complain, didn't make the cut. So just to get this straight, you were were you happy with the way the, the course played, or if it would have been played at a different time of year, would the it's course have shown at least you differently? You can't choose. From my perspective, the, the golf course we took ten years preparing the golf course. We adjusted the course after the U.S. Amateur to sharpen it and lengthen it and do other things that Mike Davis and the USJ wanted. But once it was, once I'm the composer, and once I hand the music over to the conductor, they can do what they want with it. I have no, no say in that. I might, they might ask my opinion, but they're going to conduct it the way they see fit. And so the, the bottom line is it was out of my hands. In terms of what actually happened, I think it was fabulous. And so do, so do all the people who were there, including the players who actually had a hunt. Um, they get bored playing tournaments. This may sound strange, but you know, for them, it's, 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 it's like a, an elite labor union. They're happy when they get paid, and, and uh, they, they, that, they, that, they're very, that they're also great athletes. And once they're asked to reach up deeper, then they're, then they're great sportsmen. And uh, I think, uh, from my perspective, that feeling was felt throughout the crowd. You could ask anybody who was there, other than the media, <laughs> other than the golf channel. But they were upset with Fox News, and that was really what was sadly going on. Um, at the time. I like the way Jones described Chambers Bay as avant-garde. I think that's a nice way to frame what that course is. And it's an interesting way to think about golf courses as art rather than just functional pieces of ground. I also found it interesting that he described his father's work in the 1940s and into the 50s and 60s as also as avant-garde. That's exactly what Keith Cutton and I discussed when he came on the podcast in March, and how golf course architecture of the mid-20th century was a response and a reaction to the modern economy and culture. Listen. So when you talk about that post-World War II era, you have to understand that there really was a break in the knowledge of, you know, the passing of knowledge between mentor and and protege. There's a 15-year span there that included the Great Depression, World War II, where the focus was not on golf. There was some, you know, minor uh, projects because of some of the public funding programs that were going on that were happening just prior to, prior to World War II. But a lot of the bigger projects were bigger infrastructure projects, and that's where most of the money went. So, and that was sort of the tail end of many of these, um, you know, McKenzie... Maxwell, a lot of these guys who were sort of at the tail end of that um, that lineage, Stanley Thompson being Canadian, their their work it started pre World War One, so these guys were at their tail end of their careers, and following World War Two, um, if we can get back to the public perception, is that they'd just been through this is the Second World War that they've been through. They've been through some very harsh times with the Depression. World War II is a lot more real for people than World War One. 
just with the media and everything that it, it really brought it home. Plus, you know, in America with Pearl Harbor happening, um, it was real on the home front. So following World War II, a lot of people, this whole modernist movement came forward where the outlook was to the future and to what America do, could do next and, you know, opportunities. And there wasn't that revenance to what had happened previously to World War II. You know, you have to look at golf architecture as, and it always has been, at the influence of society tastes and norms. And that's exactly what happened following World War II, is the, the social mindset shifted. It was looking forward. There was no reverence to what had happened. And they almost wanted to forget, and you can't blame yeah. them. You know, they, 15 years of just horror would have really put a negative, it didn't matter how great the 20s were, um, a lot of people from that post-World War II era didn't have a clear vision of, of that time. And it, it, relating it strictly to golf, a lot had changed. Those, those clubs, you know, the beautiful pictures we see now, because of the internet of the way these clubs like Cypress looked in the twenties, though it did not look that way following world war two, that, that, that club was completely, those golf courses were completely neglected and abandoned mm. for at least six to 15 years. You know, mother nature has a way of changing things, you know, if they're maintained, let alone if focus is completely elsewhere. Uh, so there was no, nobody was looking at what the, what the previous uh, practitioners had written. There was no real evidence left of what they had done. Um, you know, some clubs remain, but even those were private. So for the general public, their idea of golf was altered. And society was pointing them in a different direction. So you can't, you can't blame Robert Trent Jones, Dick Wilson for pursuing that. There was so much depth to that conversation Keith and I had. It was, uh, was definitely one of the best dialogues that we've had on this show. One of the other things we talked about during our discussion was his forthcoming book, The Evolution of Golf Course Design. Uh, it was unpublished at that time. It is now out. It's in print and available. You can get it at cuttengolf.com, C-U-T-T-E-N, golf.com. I highly recommend it. Anybody interested in golf course architecture, if you haven't picked it up yet, definitely check that out. One of the highlights of the year was having on Ron Witten. As a someone who writes about golf and golf courses, he's been basically an idol of mine since the late 80s uh, when I was a teenager and I first started to see his byline in Golf Digest. He had the job that I wanted. I still want it. I could have taken probably any clip from the conversation that we had and aired it here, but I picked a clip where we talk about where golf course architecture is right now and where it might go in the future. If anybody has a, a sense of what's come before and where we are now and where we're heading, it's, it's Ron Witten. And I tell people who are interested in architecture, if you keep an open mind, I think you would find the study more fascinating and more interesting. 
But I understand, you know, architects is like politics today. It's very polarized. And, and as you said, it's almost tribal where, where you have a, a, you know, there are factions who are fanatic about a certain architect. Um, and, uh, my, again, my personal feeling is, is variety is what makes sets the game of golf apart from any other sport, the variety of golf courses and the variety within golf courses. And, to the extent that anybody says absolutes, like, oh, for example, there are, you know, trees have no place on a golf course. That's an absolute that I just shake my head at because, um, it, it, it you know, if, if, if you're building a, uh, on, on Lynx land, certainly, although there are Lynx lands, uh, Lynx courses in Scotland that have cops of trees here and there. Um, but if if you're in the Pacific Northwest and somebody says, you know, an architect says, well, tree there, a tree should have no place on a golf course. You're 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 not giving uh, due attention to the area where you're working. Um, I I think the best golf courses, personally, I think the best golf courses are those that give you a sense of where you're at, and uh, that's why I love Sand Hills in Nebraska because I grew up in Nebraska and I grew up, you know. Uh, visiting the sand hills and I always envisioned golf courses out there. Uh, I wrote about that in, in 1981 also in the, in the book, the golf course. Yeah. There's a picture and, of um, uh, sand hill, <laughs> Nebraska sand hills there. Yeah. And, and when I, the first time I met Ben Crenshaw, he pointed that picture and he said, where is this? Um, to me, if, if, if a, if a golf course gives you a sense of where you're at, then the architect is, is serving nature. He's doing, doing what, uh, what I think architects try to do best. And that is work with nature or imitate nature or, or be compatible with nature. And yet, you know, when I see all the, the wonderful McDonald and Rainer courses, which are, you know, clearly man-made and, and have to, in my way of thinking, the look of, of old military fortresses and the old military um, rifle pits and, and all this stuff. Um, I understand that too. I mean, they, they, they were, they were, they, they weren't, they were superimposing upon nature. And that was, that was their philosophy. That was their style. I accept that uh, to the extent that some architects today do that more power to them. I, I just, I keep searching for the next creative burst. There haven't been, there's been a lot of, of imitation or adaptation or reinvention. You know, Pete Dye said years and years ago, there ain't no, there ain't nothing original in golf architecture. Everything's a copy of something. Although Pete himself sort of established over the years, several different, styles or, or, you know, startling different styles. Uh, Jim Ng, I think has created a, a very recognizable, distinctive style. I call it art deco because it's a lot of repeating, mm -hmm. repeating a repetition of, of things that, that is very soothing to, to people. And a lot of people like that because of that. And, and, you know, they don't, they don't consciously recognize that. They just, they just, um, but, you know, Jim is, is, he gets, he gets his, uh, he, he 
gets criticized from time to time. And, um, uh, you know, I'd hate to, to think that nobody would hire Jim Ng because, because his, his style is suddenly out of vogue. It, to me, there shouldn't be, uh, one style in vogue. It should, we should, we should embrace the fact that there are different architects willing to try different things on different pieces of property. There are certainly courses for courses. Um, Dick Youngscap, I was a guy that convinced Dick, Dick Youngscap to go out and build a Sandhills golf course. And he had hired Pete Dye in the early 80s to do Firethorn in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that's where I met Dick. And uh, we looked at a piece of property in late, nine, late, eight, 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 oh, sorry, late 1989, uh, right off the Platte River. It's now called uh, Cory Oaks. Um, but he was, he was thinking about getting Pete back there to do that. And I told him, well, geez, if, you know, if you're interested in building another course, I'd do something out in the sand hills. And he told me I was crazy, but then he went out there and he called me and says, I got to get Pete out there. And I said, no, 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 no. Pete, you give Pete a, a dead fly piece of ground, he'll create something for you. But if you give him a great piece of topography, <laughs> you know, he's, he's still going to do his thing on it. And, uh, you want somebody that would work with, with the landforms there. And that's how Bill Corn, Ben Crenshaw get involved in, and, and no disrespect to Pete. I just think Pete has a certain, uh, a, a certain palette of, of, of architecture that's different than others. And on the right sites, uh, you know, pizza, pizza genius. And, and, uh, and the same with Tom Fazio, you know, Tom, Tom has had, had the luxury of which a lot of people are very jealous of having very, very rich clients who were willing to grant him the sort of budgets that will allow him to create, as he says, create new environments to build mountains where, where, where no mountains existed and, and to, uh, you know, to, to transform. We, there isn't an architect out there alive that wouldn't love to just say, I ah, give me a flat canvas and uh, a flat piece of land and unlimited budget, and let me go at it. Uh, we were talking about that. Jim Jim Nagel was talking about that the other day in, in a group discussion to members at Lancaster Country Club, talking about Wayne Flynn doing Indian Creek down in Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a, a landfill island, and he was given a blank canvas. Do whatever you want. That was the only time that he ever got to to do whatever he wanted. Uh, that's the same with Lido and... and uh, McDonald and Rainer, you know, when, when you're, when you're starting from scratch and you're filling in and that's, that's why I've, I've always been fascinated with the links at Spanish Bay, because that was something that a triumvirate of, of architects were able to take a flat piece of land and direct where sand should have deposited, deposited and, and, and create their own landscape. I've, I've always suggested, I'd love to be involved in a project where you just took guys learning to run bulldozers and took them out in the field and started to start putting, pushing around stuff and then just tell them to stop yeah. and use whatever landforms they created. I've thought about that too. In fact, Tom, yeah. Tom Lehman did a course called Victory at Verado out in um, Buckeye, Arizona, west of Phoenix. That was an old bulldozer practice field. It was where they trained bulldozer operators pushing, pushing huge boulders and rocks around and he used a lot of that 
um, to fashion some of the holes. And it, you know, that, that that's to me the essence of what architecture is about is 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 finding a different piece of property and and doing something unique that fits that those landforms. And um, and it, there are no two architects that would address it the same. Um, and that's the fascination for me, and that's what what I've tried to over the last forty years emphasize to to my readers and to you know trying to to anybody interested in architecture is that uh, it's you know there are a myriad ways to to design and build golf holes and and we should embrace that fact. That doesn't mean we have to like them all. That doesn't mean we have to love them all. But, you know, it's worth seeking out and playing different courses and, and studying those those uh, architecture just the way, I, you know, we should read different novelists or listen to different artists. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned that Pete said one time that there's nothing new in golf course architecture. And, you know, you could even trace his shaping back to Bill Langford and and Donald Ross, you know, that gets, com- he gets that comparison a lot. And then he sprinkled in some Scottish elements. So it was a more, you know, his ideas plus combining things that had existed and he'd seen before. And so, but that's, that's really the, that's really the chestnut out there is what, what's next? What is new? Do you think there are new ideas under the sun? You mentioned Jim Eng, who I agree. I'm a big fan of Jim Eng. I love playing his, playing his golf courses, but he does catch a lot of criticism for kind of pushing his design style out in a, in a direction that's outside the boundaries. Sometimes when people, when architects or artists try to experiment or try to advance the art, it, it doesn't work. Is there, do you think, have you, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Is, is there an, a door that hasn't been opened yet? A lot about that. And, and, um, uh, I'm not intelligent enough to, to, quite determine what door hasn't been opened. Uh, I, I have a gut feeling that we, that there's gotta be something out there that we haven't seen yet, but I, you know, I can't, I can't really take, put my finger on it. Uh, I, I can tell you that, um, you know, a few years back, you know, on a, on a bid, we did a, with, um, uh, Jeff Brower and I bid on a course, which we didn't get the design. And we made this whole presentation on what we call the concept course. And we had all these different sort of, 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 you might say wacky ideas just to kind of separate our, ourselves. And, and, uh, and we brainstormed a lot about what hasn't been, what have we seen in the past that hasn't been done rightly and that sort of thing. I can tell you on, on this trip here in Philadelphia, uh, um, I've seen a number of cross bunkers and cross bunkers are a lost art. I think that's one of these things that, that, um, uh, goes with, you know, this philosophy of, Oh, we've got to make this game, you know, playable for everyone. And somehow cross bunkers, you know, are considered a forced hat carry. And so you don't do, force carries there are enough force carries that that are dictated to us by regulations don't do cross bunker force carries and i spoke the other day with jim nagel at lancaster country club and i talked about how 
you know, the ground grain is great, but the the ball is play, uh, the game is played through the air. Manufacturers are building clubs to get the ball airborne. Instructors, you know, trained to get the ball airborne. People want to hit the ball in the air as far as they can. And there's nothing wrong with asking us average golfers once or twice in a round to hit the ball in the air over hazard. The playability aspect where certain architects say, you know, I want, I want a golf course where grandma can play the course with a putter. Um, I, I personally disagree with, I think, I think that's, that turns it into a one dimensional game. And, um, I'd love to, and then I'm working on a course right now and I'm, we've got a couple of cross bunkers in there and we'll see if, if the client agrees to it. But I, I still think that's an aspect. It's not a, it's not a new door, it's a door that's been it's it's an old closet that's been kind of uh, locked for a long time. I I can't think of too many cross bunkers in in modern day. Is it sort um, of like the the I'm old steeplechase cross bunker, like the, something that's draped across the entire fairway? Yeah, right. Where yeah. the where the fairway ends, where it's a hell's half acre. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's not it's not a hell's ha- it's not a half acre. It's just a. a either a string of bunkers or a cluster of bunkers or one large artfully shaped bunker, uh, whatever. But the whole idea is the golfer has to hit the ball in the air to, uh, to reach the target. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we've, we, we sometimes lose sight of those kind of things. Ron Witten, considering the reach of his voice through Golf Digest and, and the period of time that he's been writing about it has done more to advance the awareness of golf course architecture into the mainstream public than probably anybody. He knows as much about architecture, contemporary and historic, as anybody. And more than that, his experiences and his relationships with architects themselves is as deep and as great as perhaps anybody who's ever lived, with the possible exception of Brad Klein. And let's listen to Brad Klein. You know, I, I, I can tell from the response I got from the Donald Ross book in, in particular, which did pretty well. It sold uh, 13,000 copies, I think, for an $85 book. Uh, that um, people there are, there are some people out there who take this stuff seriously. So, uh, you know, of all the golf, I always thought architecture was about 5% of the golfing public. And if I can reach that, that's really cool. So I'm, I'm gratified mm-hmm. if that response has been there. And I'm getting the feeling... Uh, so lately that that's been the case. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that you've been a major voice in slowly convincing segments of the golf audience that architecture matters and also in convincing them also that there are certain types of golf courses that we should pay closer attention to. Uh, it seem, And it seems like the tide over the last several years has has swung. There seems to be a bigger audience than ever now for the type of excellent golf courses that we've seen built since, you know, 2000, since the early 2000s. I know many people have kind of turned this the second golden age of architecture, and I posited to Ian Andrew a few weeks ago that there's no doubt that this is an amazing time for golf course design at the highest levels. But I wonder if we should term this period more neoclassical rather than another golden age because a golden age signifies development creation 
a flow of creativity and new ideas, a flourishing of, of new thoughts. At least that's how I interpret it. Where this era is really more of reminding people of what was great, you know, in the 19 teens and 20s and expressing that on new landforms rather than architects coming up with, you know, advancing architecture into a new place. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I've seen some of the stuff in France, which to me looks like what they're trying to advance. And it's, uh, you know, they've got, they've got golf courses that look like Vauban's fortresses from the 6th, 17th century. So if that's advancing along with Desmond Muirhead, God help us. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what I would say there is uh, that uh, I think the really important link that's been made with the so-called second golden age, or I kind of like your term, neoclassical, it's actually the relationship between design and construction. And what's fascinating is all the really good work is about the field work, uh, the design build in the field. Uh, and that's where Pete Dye was really innovative. And all of the guys, many of the guys who are, many of the people who are leading this, you know, phase that we're in came out of Pete Dye's school. Uh, Tom Doak in particular comes right to mind. Bill Corp, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, um, and Rod Whitman. And, uh, what it, it's about building something that looks like what you have in your head. I think the really disastrous phase in golf course architecture was ushered in when people did detailed plans and handed off to a contractor, and then they came back once every two weeks or once a week to check on it and make sure that everything was built as, as drawn. And I've had architects who have told me that they're very proud that they never had any change orders because they built exactly what they drew. And my answer is, yeah, it looks that way. It looks like kind of a Tupperware. And uh, you've got all these contractors out here who they're very good, they're very competent, but uh, a lot of them are building the last golf course they built rather than yours. And so the attention to detail and the fact that these designers have their own shaping crew, you know, uh, Caveman Construction with Gil Hans, for example, or Doak's crew of shapers, or uh, Ben and Bills, who have gone off to do some really good work on their own, and guys like uh, Kyle Franz, uh, that's really innovative because they're, they're actually creating, and they're doing it not just on new courses, but almost, I would say, mainly on older courses, the restoration. So there's a kind of rule of thumb I think is really helpful in architecture, which is that the feature work and the complexity and the beauty of it is basically uh, disproportional to the size of the equipment you're using. And if you're using a big bulldozer, you're not going to get it right. If you're using a very small machine or a backhoe or a shovel, or a horse and oxen, or a, a, a trencher, not a trencher, a, a, a small backhoe, uh, a skid steer, then you can get it right. So that is really the big innovation, I think, and that's been missed but for the most part by the golfing public and actually by most writers. The focus is not on design, it's on construction in the field. And I think that one of the things that happened is that the same golf writers who were enthralled to the tour players, whether it was Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, or, or Tiger Woods, they kind of latched on to name designers like Tom Fazio and Reese Jones and, and Nicholas and, and Pete Dye. And, they, and you know, they, they talk about them in terms as if they're sort of auteurs creating a movie by themselves. And they forget about the cinematographer and the, and the, and, and the key grip and the, uh, the staffers and the, and the drivers and the set designers. So uh, that attention to me is really what's transformed modern architecture into that neoclassical mode that you're talking about. If I had to guide somebody to just a single episode of this podcast, somebody who'd never heard it before and wanted to know what it was about, I'd recommend they listen to my conversation with Ian Andrew. 
back when I was envisioning the podcast and thinking about what kind of conversations I wanted to have, it was exactly this type of conversation that I had with Ian. Deep, intelligent, exploratory, opinionated, no bullshit, and a willingness to put forth new and interesting and even controversial ideas. Like you just heard Ron Witten and Bradley Klein talk about, Ian in this passage is talking about the contemporary state of architecture, his critique on it, and where he thinks it might and maybe should go in the future. It, it's the lack of variety in work um, in general terms right now that's a struggle. I mean, it, it, it feels like to a small degree, if it doesn't either follow the pattern of, of Rainer or, or, or the pattern of, let's call it uh, Prairie Dunes aesthetic, there isn't a lot of other things going on. There's, there's nobody building Tillinghouse bunkers. It just feels like we seem to be locked into a very, very tight little window of, of ideas at the moment. And, and I guess what I'm wishing for sort of as a, as a lover of the art, because I always remove myself um, competitively from any of this because I don't think I am competitive within, within this environment. But as a lover of the art, I would just like to see something different, a little bit more, you know, follow through in these, these uh, golden age ideas, but let's take a different version of the golden age and let's go with it. Um, we just, it feels like we're, we're falling into a couple of different themes. And, and as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling without the depth. Uh, go back for a second. You mentioned Fazio and Pronghorn. What exactly do you mean by that? What, what can we uh, dis- distill well, from that, or that particular example? Um, the idea of there was definitely a period where uh, uh, Chambers Bay was a great example, where essentially I, I just believe there were um, a, a number of the modern architects borrowed the aesthetic of the minimalists, trying to sort of uh, broaden their appeal to developers. Right. And I, I just think um, you know some of the works are a little more interesting looking, but the, but the problem with it is it had the modern ideal sitting underneath it with the minimalist skin stuck over the top of it and and it, it was interesting to see what was done but what happened was there was a big run of it for a while and it just again it just it it kind of littered the landscape with a, a very similar aesthetic and and it to me, it didn't add to the sort of the depth and the quality. I'd rather people just, if they believe in something, do what you believe in. Um, follow it through, see it through. Maybe it's not the style of the time, but the way we get great work is by somebody with complete conviction on philosophically what they want to do and what they want to see, seeing it to an end. And that's how we get our, our greatest work. But I, I feel like right now, to become popular, and particularly to be um, to make it to Golf Club Atlas to sort of be kind of blunt or short uh, about the idea, to to make it to that um, that group, the the people who are super into architecture, it feels like um, people are almost working within a style to try and gather the attention, and and I just kind of wish that that architecture had a little bit more. Um, strength to go in some different directions, hard as hell, and and see things through. And they and maybe they don't turn out to be as good, but I do think the variety will lead to a lot more uh, interesting um, outcomes in golf architecture because 
if you if somebody doesn't point out boldly in another direction, it doesn't move the needle along. Everything just incrementally follows the same path, and you're only going to get incremental movements. You need the outlier to sort of draw a big change or a, a, an advance or a um, to people to sort of reconsider. And I, I, I'm I'm pining for the outlier. Yeah, exactly. But you you write about the you know the the history and the trajectory of art is always a new vanguard coming in and kind of overthrowing the established form. And that's what made Sandhills and Pacific Dunes, you know, at the early end of that so radical is because no, nobody had built a golf course like that, at least in the United States for, for decades. And now it's like, okay, now we've played this look, we've played this concept out and what's next. What do you think? What, what's even possible uh, out there? (laughs) What's, what's going to, gain traction i it's all you know like i when, when you say like n- new forms of architecture i think of mike strands was starting to go there although he might have been starting to come back to something a little slightly more conventional uh jim ang is polar a polarizing figure uh, what what do you see that's even possible as a the next step that could be carried through well the, the i mean if if you want to take um Golden Age, because it is. It got to remember that's the like the million dollar question. If you had the answer, you would go in that place and then you would succeed, right? But it's not that simple. But um, on a Golden Age perspective, I I, I do think um, uh, it's funny. It's been called minimalism, but I actually think the movement is very is not minimalistic. I think uh, it's actually fairly dramatic aesthetically. Um, so I always thought it was mislabeled, but I do think. Um, you know, I, I look at what David did out at um, Sand Valley, and to me that's maximalism. I mean, it's taking sort of the uh, the current movement to its extremes, and, right. and to me it doesn't it, it just it doesn't work for me personally. I just think there's a certain point once you get to a certain width that it strategically it it starts to lose interest because it's not really demanding anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I do believe that part of the game is. Um, I'm definitely a believer in width, but I think at a certain point, part of the game is earning um, your achievements. Right. And so I'm, I, I, I do believe that once you get beyond, so I, I don't think it, I don't think it's on that end. And I think Pete Dye's proved that once you go to a certain point, it just all becomes. For me, Pete Dye became messy. The bigger he gets, the messier he got. I think it's actually the other way around. I think it, it's from land use. It's also from uh, intimacy. I think we've lost some of the intimacy in some of the design work. I think coming back to something with that's a little bit smaller, a little bit narrower, actually would be a really good reaction to what's going on. Uh, maybe a little less uh, reliance on the visuals of bunkering and just being a little bit more uh, honest or straightforward with the architecture or a little bit more clean. Um, Going back to slightly more geometric forms, uh, getting a little boxy again, um, even um, daring to sort of interrupt play uh, rather than uh, running beside it or working with angles because angles have dominated the game so much. Actually, something that, that, that interjects itself, runs straight across, not necessarily um, going all the way back to the penal school, but the idea of... of, of um, sort of doorstops at the side, like little um, 
but interrupting the flow, like mm-hmm. having having complete flow and then interrupting it. But um, it, it kind of plays off some of the ideas of the the rectilinear forms of Rayner, but not playing off those forms. I mean, something a little bit more even old school than that, more uh, a, a little bit more um, straight-lined. Uh, I, I do think that possibility would be almost jarring at this point because we haven't seen anything like it. I do think Andy Staples has kind of touched that a little bit with his Meadowbrook work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found some of the things I saw there super compelling. And I think if anybody's done anything that sort of caught my eye in the last little while, I think it's that particular project. So if, uh, if somebody was looking for something different, that's where I'd point them. Right. Um, just to, to look for something that, that does sort of run slightly um, away from the flow of everything else. So that, that would be actually, a, a, just because that would probably be your next question, pick a project, that would be the project. It's hard not to root for Dan Hickson, a kind of homeschooled do-it-yourself architect in the Pacific Northwest who's building courses that are garnering national attention. Here we're talking about Sylvie's Valley Ranch, a course he recently opened in eastern Oregon, and the entire concept of reversible golf courses. There's one that's being built in, in, my, in Atlanta, a reversible nine-hole yeah. course. You know, Tom Doak's yeah. loop course, you know, opened well, a couple years ago to, to great acclaim. Yeah. Now Sylvie's yeah. Ranch has come on. Do you, is, is the reversible concept, is that a viable concept in golf to you? Does it have enough advantages to it to make you believe it's something that we're going to see more of? Or is it something, a wave that's going to crash and pass and we'll just move on to the next thing? You know, I, I think it's a perfect deal for a country club. And, you know, I would love to try to retrofit a golf course with it. And there's a, there's a couple that I know of in this area that I would love to, that I think that it could happen. Not that it could happen that they're going to do it, but I think, you know, if a whole bunch of elements came together and they had the money and time and, and foresight, they could convert their course into a reversible. Now, I, I'm not even proposing it or anything like that, but I do think from a country club standpoint, man, great, great um, marketing to have two courses in one and, and still the ground of one. I, I don't know if it, Derek with the, with the economy and, or the golf economy, I should say that, you know, I, I, I kind of tend to think that had somebody built one, you know, like in 1990, (laughs) we probably would have 25 of them, but nobody did. And, you know, I, uh, that's, that's kind of where, you know, when I was in it, when I was doing mine and, you know, I, I know we started way before the loop started and, you know, I, I really felt, you know, just like, Hey, I'm doing something that, really nobody's ever tried to do a big full scale, like I don't want to use championship golf course, but you know, a big full scale golf course that's 100% designed that way. It's going to be played that way. And all, all these, all the elements are, are there to, you know, to do a kind of a fancy high end place, so to speak. And, uh, you know, as unfortunate we took so long, but you know, in the big scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. I've proposed it, um, for a two other times already. Um, but in both cases, they're, they're sort of distant projects that I'm not sure will even happen, let alone would we do reversible. But I, I do like to throw that out there and, and talk to the owners and developers to the idea of here's why. You know, I, and I, I know I could build a, an 18 green one, 
for the exact same price as I could build an 18 hole golf course. No other changes. That's yeah, attractive I, I right back. there in itself. Yeah. I mean, just maybe a minuscule amount more because you're probably going to make, you're going to make a few more T tops, but if you use native soil, that's really no expense. I mean, slightly more shaping your greens are probably going to be a little bit bigger slightly, but I mean, we're talking, you know, way under 20% bigger just to accommodate, you know, two directions. And, and so, you know, kind of, why wouldn't you do it? And, you know, you know, but, but, you know, not very many people have played them yet. I mean, gosh, until at some point last summer, you know, I was the only person that had played the loop and Sylvie's Valley ranch. And then we've had a couple people that have played both now and, you know, nobody's going to accuse Tom Doak or myself of, of copying each other. They're so dramatically different, which started with his program of 18 greens and my program of kind of no rules. Right. And so, I mean, how about a country club that has returning nines and reversible, you essentially, you get four courses because <laughs> you can play, you know. Yeah. Count clockwise, counterclockwise. One, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could like braid it, kind of twist it. Uh, so, did you yeah, like? So, did you like the loop? Were you impressed by? Uh, yeah, I like. I liked it very much. Were you able and, to look at I it was, ob- objectively, or, or were you constantly, you know, analyzing on the reversible concept and and the, the against the ideas that you had? How does your brain work when you see like something that's oh, somewhat well, in com- competition? It was. It was really. It was really interesting because you know I I looked at his drawings which. I couldn't really decipher too much. I knew he'd do, I knew he had used 18 green, you know, obviously he's a great architect and builds great courses. And I, I loved it. The, I went in, I went in nervous going, gosh, I just hope I don't walk out there and say, Oh, how did I not do that? You know? Oh, he thought of all this stuff that I didn't even think of. And I, I didn't get that at all. He, he did a lot of things that, um, that I had purposely not done, you know, he has a lot of, uh, and I'm not even putting it down. I'm just saying he took on things that I chose not to. Right. He has his, his, he has a lot of routing that, you know, literally the greens are nearly 180 to each other. So you come into a green from the back and the front and his routing. So he'll have holes that, and you know, there's not very many that are straight on like that. And he has quite a few that are say the approach at a 90 degree or a, 110 or a 120 type of degree. Whereas, you know, I consciously made our pretty much all our double holes kind of a zigzag pattern. So when, when we have, we have one stretch where we have one, two, three, four, five greens in a row that are um, doubles, you know, on either, either course and those fairways just zigzag back and forth. So, I mean, if you just took your finger and zigzag across the, piece of paper and at each corner you put a green so your approach angles are not that much different from each other you know they i think we probably average you know 40 degrees or something like that or 30 degrees Mm -hmm. and so and that's enough to really make a green look different play different but it's not the same as somewhat having to make kind of a crowned green because you know you're approaching from the front and he kind of picked high spots for greens too which again there's I don't, I don't want to, I'm not, uh, not as a negative, but he has kind of crowned more crowned greens than, than Sylvie's has. 
So, you know, you, if you hit it too long, it bounces over and goes down the front of the other side, off the back, I should say, uh-huh. and then vice versa. And so, yeah, and so, again, he just had a di- – he was, he was committed to 18 greens and, you know, to make that reversible as he, as he's, as he sees reversible, not as I saw it. Yeah, and for and any so for anyone who's who wants to be a proponent of reversible courses, it's it would be important to have diversity within that concept, within that genre. You oh. wouldn't want them all to be like the loop, and you wouldn't want everyone to look like Sylvie's Ranch. And I'm sure there there's dozens of variations on that. So it it, it yeah, does I show mean, that there's added possibility there because you can do it in different ways. Oh gosh, it's just endless. And you know, I'm sure if this guy or the the next guy did it instead of Tom and myself, they'd probably come up with something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I, and you know, the things he worried, he's, he was worried. And we, cause I talked to him quite a bit there. He was worried about, you know, one course being significantly better than the other and that there would be pressure for the owner and whoever to just play one. Well, I want to play that one cause it's so much better. I never even, that never even crossed my mind cause I knew they would be, pretty darn similar, but I worried about just building the one or two bad holes. You know, I'm not famous and well-known and I don't have a, I don't, I mean, my business is doing great, but I'm not at that type of level where I'm, you know, getting jobs all around the world. I'm, I work locally and have a ton of work. And so I just didn't feel like I had the, I didn't have the option to screw up. Right, right. You know, some guys can, <laughs> some guys can, you know, build a bad hole and they're, you know, they're still getting their big design fees and projects, you know, in the pipe. And I just, I didn't have that option. Mike Nuzo came on the podcast, and we spent most of our time talking about the extraordinary project Wolf Point, a golf course he built for the exclusive use of a private resident in South Texas. But I was equally intrigued by a project he's just finishing up now outside of Houston called Grand Oak Reserve, and particularly the model it might provide for community-based public golf. So the, the, so now the the, genes- the overall golf perspective of the site is if you walk up to the clubhouse, if you walk up to the pro shop and you say you want to play golf, you say, well, how much time do you have? If you have 30 minutes, you play the putting course. If you have an hour, you play the par three course. If you have two hours, you play the big course. If you have more time, you play some combination of those. And they, they are exactly what I would want to go play. If I had half an hour, that's where I'd play. If I had an hour, that's what I would do. And if I had two hours, that's what I would do. So you don't need to go practice. You don't need to go to top golf as many golf balls as top golf sells. I would still rather go play a cool little par three golf course for an hour. That's I would too. That's, that's, uh, I, I would, I, I wouldn't even be close. Yeah. Like Wolf Point, it's, this sounds like to people who like golf and golf architecture, this sounds like some place they, they would love to go play. Unlike Wolfport Point, they actually can. This is a, a place where people who are stopping and have business in Houston or passing through might want to seek out Grand Oaks and the Nine Grand Course and the Three Grand Course and this putting course you're talking about. It's because it sounds sounds like what golf needs right now, this kind of diversity and openness. Yeah, I hope so. I, lo- I love it. The, the overall property, it, it, is, it is planned to be an inexpensive public golf course. I don't know. It, it is going to be affordable very affordable so epically different and i'm 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 excited to to see more people play and it'd be phenomenal to have a lot of people play it it's to anybody the point is that anybody can go play like if if 
if I were to control the initial website, the launch of it, the, like the on the first page of the like as you the splash page, you would say, by the way, have you ever played golf before? <laughs> that that why wouldn't you ask someone? If they, yeah, that's the first question I would ask. Have you ever played before? Not have you ever played here before? Do you do you know anything about golf? Do you know you can just pull into our parking lot, come say hi, and we'll give you a putter, and you can go play a whole course? <laughs> so you've never been on a course before. So so part of when they try to when the homes and the model homes are up, one of the the features of the way this is structured, the golf, is that you give people a tour, you show them the community center and the pool area, and oh, by the way, this golf over here, it's not just for the elitists. Anyone can come play. So it'll be a, it is going to be a, an amenity to when they're selling and developing the home. I had a scintillating conversation with Bruce Hepner, someone who's been integral in the creation of some of the modern era's greatest golf courses alongside Tom Doak including places like Streamsong Blue, Cape Kidnappers, Pacific Dunes, Ballyneal, and Rock Creek Cattle Company in Montana. But I was especially moved by how Hepner wanted to credit the excellence of those courses, not just to the work that he and Doak and Jim Urbina did, but primarily to the work of shapers who work for Renaissance Design, guys like Eric Iverson, Brian Slonick, Brian Schneider, Don Plasek, and a host of interns who've shaped and worked for the company over the last 20 years. What did it feel like to start working with Tom Doak, this guy who is going to, you know, go on to become our generation's one or, you know, the first or second most prominent architect of our generation. Was there a, what, what did the architecture world feel like to you in those mid 90 years? Well, I knew, I knew Tom, um, even when I was in college, I, I wrote him a couple letters and I'd be that guy that call him once a month and bug him and ask him some stupid question. What, what did you, what did, what did, actually did you know about him? Um, he was building, he was, uh, building high point up here in Michigan. Okay. And the story was this young kind of brilliant guy was, you know, just kind of out there was going to build this minimalist kind of this different kind of golf course. And, and I followed it and I'm like, that guy, you know, that guy's got something. He's just, well, it's once in a generational young, young talented guys. And some I knew about it, you know, I, I just followed you know, his career, he wrote, you know, when he wrote the anatomy of golf cars, you know, I, I read that from cover to cover in about two hours as soon as it came out. So Gil, Gil had just left him. And so he was looking for somebody, you know, to fill that spot, kind of run the company. And I think our being had just been hired. So uh, I was going to jump at the opportunity because I wanted to shape also, but, you know, for the first three or four years, we did nothing but my remodel projects, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any new work, but you know, I had faith in them. You know, <laughs> You'd have to, there, there was a point, there was a point where Abina was almost let go. Cause we were out of money. You know, I was luckily making money doing renovation work and that was kind of keeping the co company floating. And God, I think we were within a month of Jim getting a pink slip, you know, and wow. all of a sudden we, we got beach street. I think it was the year we got Evansville or beach street. It kind of saved our company. But for the first three years, we were just doing nothing but remodel work. Tom was writing a book, and um, I'd go over to his house once a week, and we just kind of goof around with some plans, you know, waiting for something to happen. Uh, but I had faith in him, and I got, you know, luckily I got to move back to Traverse City, you know, into tra back to Traverse City, and um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we heard about the Sand Hills being built. Uh, we knew Bill and Ben pretty well, and I remember talking to bill on the phone he goes man you're not going to believe this place you know they flew in a helicopter up there with ron witten and, and that kind of changed everything kind of gave everybody faith that, that something 
something like that could be built. And we struggled along, but we, we built some pretty cool, cool kind of simple golf courses. Well, were you, were you sitting there kind of, you know, you know, the talent that you guys have, you probably yeah. had an idea of what type of golf courses you wanted to build and you weren't getting the mm-hmm. opportunity. And that you're looking out left, right, up, down, and you're seeing, you know, Nicholas course here, Arthur Hills course here, uh, Arnold Palmer here, Tom Fazio here. I mean, are you, are you like, <laughs> you don't have to yeah. answer this honestly i hope you do but are you like we're better than this like we have we can do a better job than well we thought we paying could. For. We, you know we we just needed opportunities and <clears throat> we did we got them in small scales it was hard to get in the jobs we got we got you know kind of c-level projects but we we turned them into something cool that you know we we're following tom's lead he knew he knew what he wanted to do tom's i always say tom's brilliance has never changed he, he always had the same ideas we just got better at facilitating those ideas, you know, the layers as we progressed as shapers and associates, we were better able to bring his ideas to fruition. And then we took it to a, you know, a different level and a higher science and we kept bringing on a higher talent. You know, some of the guys that we, you know, when Brian Slana came on that changed our company because he was the Finnish guy. He was the guy that was anally detailed at putting all the cool details in and then we eric iverson got hired so it was so it was it was you and then and jim it was just me and jim and then brian then eventually the the, uh, chronology was jim then me right after that then we brought tom mead on for a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, we hired don placek okay kind of then took you know he came from the die organization it was Tom and eric iverson brought in don and don kind of took over the office you know he's just a great He's the rock of the Renaissance. He doesn't get much credit, or, but he's the rock of the place. He take, he holds it all together. He's the brilliant artist, still a really good consultant. And then that released me out of the field because I wanted to go shape. I wanted to learn how to shape. And uh, we built some, you know, we built some golf courses. And and um, you know, Jim was the primary shaper. He taught, you know, taught me how to shape. And we were we weren't the great, you know, we were good, but we weren't great shapers we still had a lot of finish work we had to do and our finish work wasn't still all that great and when brian slana came on as my our intern from michigan state at beach tree and when he came on we this is how talented he isn't smart he went to uva for architecture and got a michigan state degree at turf week one he was on the drainage crew week two he ran the drainage crew week three he ran basically the construction site for the owner (laughs) (laughs) just that kind of a talent and he's grown on to be, you know, miraculous. But he was the one that took us to a different level because he was paying attention to finish work. And it all got it, you know, it's kind of, it all wraps back to Dave Axland and Dan Proctor. They were the myth, you know, these mythical features when they, when the Sandhills was built. We always heard about these two mystical features characters that are good friends of mine now mm-hmm. but they were building things by hand with sand pros and rakes and the finish work and the detail work and we heard about that and, and brian was hugely inspired by that and that we wanted to up our game and it was always catching up with core and crenshaw and brian's the one that upped it and we we, we eventually he he stayed with us on and off his project you know projects and finally he came to pacific dunes not enough people know that the huge influence of Brian Slonick on Pacific Dunes. All the books are written geared towards others, but 
behind the scenes, all of us know that he was the, he was the final rake before every blade of grass when seed went down. And he, he, he took it to a complete, our company to a completely different level, just on finish work and detail work and bunker work and things like that. Tom's genius has always been steady. It's just, but Brian took us up to a different level of, of that kind of de- a, a plus detail work that nobody else was doing other than Corn Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. And of course, what would 2018 have been without Peter Kessler? Here's Peter at his best. I got about that far and they said, okay, okay. You've got, they called me the next day and said, you've got the job. And then they called and said, um, that was August of 94. And they called in September and said, we want you to go see Arnold in October and get to know him and spend a few days and interview him. And of course the first show is going to be in January and it's you and Arnold and we want you to know each other. And I said, great. So I flew up to Latrobe and, um, Arnold's office is, really a house on the golf course and that's converted into an office and when you walk in right in front of you 15 feet away on a wall under glass that and the the frame may have been six by eight feet i mean huge really big and there's a master's green jacket in there and there are wax seals and there are signatures and all ribbons and all this official looking stuff and then there's the four scorecards from the four Sundays that he won the Masters, 58, 60, 62, and 64. So I, I look at the card from 1958, and, you know, I see the three on number 12, and then I see the eagle on 13 when they told him that he had actually been awarded a par instead of a double bogey on 12 under the embedded ball rule that he took advantage of that his playing partner and the ref weren't sure about. And so I recognize it for what it was. And <clears throat> I go and look at the card from 1960 when Arnold, of course, finished 3-3-3 to be Ken Venturi. And I look at this card and it says 3-4-6. So I knew for 1,000 million billion percent that that was the wrong card. And I figured out what card it was, which was 1961. Because in 61, Arnold finished 3-4-6 when he double bogeyed 18 to hit it. He hit it into the, he took, he was congratulated by George Lowe, who was standing outside the ropes after he hit his driver. And Arnold said, thank you very much. Then Arnold blocks his six iron into the bunker. And then he hits a bad bunker shot and hits a bad chip and it's a bad putt. And he makes double bogey to lose to Gary Player by a shot. So I know for 100% for sure that that's what the card is and that it's the wrong card. And how could this possibly be the case? Wondering how many thousands of people have seen this. So at that moment, Doc Giffen, his administrative aide of, you know, what turned out to be 50 plus years, walks out and introduces himself. And I said, great to meet you. And I said, you know, Doc, and I explained to him what I just told you about the scorecard. And I finished the explanation and he looks at me and he goes, there's no way you could possibly be right. 20,000 people have seen this. This came from Augusta National. Look at the seals. Look at all all the stuff on it. He said, just just let's let this go. It wouldn't be a good way to, to start your career at the Golf Channel by losing your job on the first day over having your history wrong. And I said, well, I'm not wrong. It's 100% accurate. And he said, well, how would you like to tell Arnold that? And I said, <laughs> I, would be deli- I would be delighted. So he disappears for a minute and he comes out with Arnold. And 
I had shaken Arnold's hands a few times at the Tournament of Champions in San Diego in the 70s when I used to live in San Diego, and but I didn't know him or anything. And he came out, and we introduced ourselves, and, and his hands are so big, and they were so big, and his fingers were like bananas, and each one of his fingers was kind of like double width. If you put two of your fingers together, they were just enormous. And But I had this thing where... Famous people never made me nervous or intimidated me for some reason. I, I I know it does for most people, but I always took them as, gee, this is great, and, you know, just have a normal conversation, and I was never awestruck. You know, I might be by a beautiful actress, but never by a famous golfer or famous actor or anything like that. And so we shook hands, and I said, so, Arnold, I said, so this card here, I said, this is the card from 61, where you screwed the whole thing up from the middle of the fairway and made a double bogey to lose to your good friend Gary Player. And he kind of tilted his head and looked at me like I was insane for a moment. And then he turned around and he folded his arms and he looked at the card and he looked at the card and he looked at the card and then finally, without turning around, he said, I can't believe I lost to that son of a bitch. (laughs) And that's how we started our friendship. Okay, that's a wrap. It's a wrap for this show, and it's a wrap for 2018. I uh, wish I could have gotten to everyone and all the great guests I had on last year, Jeff Mingay, Tim Liddy, Kyle Franz, and, and so many others, but that would be another 90-minute show. I hope you enjoyed this show and these highlights, and that you're inspired to maybe go back and listen to the full episodes. For my part, I'm looking forward to 2019 and getting out of the gates fast with a much-anticipated talk with David McClay Kidd, so stay tuned for that discussion in early January. Remember to support the podcast by going to iTunes and giving the show a rating or a comment. And also follow me and stay up to date on golf and architecture-related discussions on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Thanks to you all for a great year. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs. I wish all the best to you and your families. And until we do this again, Feliz Navidad.